What's up, everybody? Welcome to your latest installment of the Nuclear Barbarians podcast. It is I, your nuclear barbarian, Emmett Penny, and I am stoked to be here with one of the smartest guys around, whose name <laughs> I am about to brutally Americanize, Noah Jacob Retberg. What is up, my guy? How are you? Great. It's a sunny day here in Marburg, but it's also been raining over the last week, so no, dry, no drought here, but quite sunny and also quite, quite lovely outside. Ah, that's wonderful. So where in Germany is Melbourne? Right in the middle. Right in the middle. Okay. Okay. It's it's nice. where I work and are most of the time, but my 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 really home, my home of my heart is not Hessen, 100 kilometers north of where I now am. Okay. Okay. I got you. So you're there for now. This is your home base for now. It's beautiful yes. out today. It's also a beautiful city. It's not where I plan to spend the rest of my life, but Marburg really is a beautiful city. Would you say underrated? More people should go? Yes. I have, I have the luxury of only ever living in the most beautiful place in Germany. <laughs> I lived in, in Nordhessen mm-hmm. for my, the first 18 years. And I, mm-hmm. I went to Heidelberg to study for like two and a half years. Mm-hmm. And now I've been in Marburg for one year. And, Amazing. Uh, Heidelberg is usually also recognized as, as one of the most beautiful places in Germany. Marburg and Reinhardshagen, sadly not, especially because Reinhardshagen is not that big. Um, gotcha, but gotcha. Absolutely lovely here. But travelers take note. Okay, so today we are going to talk about synthetic fuels. We're going to branch out a little bit from nuclear in a similar fashion to the way I did with William Davis on the Grand Inga Dam. But... Before we do that, Noah, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Let the audience get to know you. How did, how did you come to be the guy I'm going to talk to about synthetic fuels? What's your story, pal? Oh, my story. Yeah, basically, I went to study physics with 18, right around the time where like the concerns with over climate change really started to boil up. So at that time, I was like really into, into electric vehicles and rockets. I was a huge Elon Musk fan. I was really optimistic about the future. And then, then really the, the, the climate movement bowled up in, in, in Germany and all over the world. Climate concerns were a big issue. And I really had to, to um, think about this stuff. And I went really into, into interested in energy because this is it has the core of solving climate change is getting sustainable carbon or generally greenhouse gas emissions free energy. This is the, the core issue. So I mm. went into learning about energy. And by that time, because I, there is are no that much anti-nuclear people in the space nut community, I wasn't that anti-nuclear already anymore, but I wasn't really a guy that thought that nuclear energy was the solution to our energy needs. But mm. I turned into that guy. And so after one year of researching energy issues, I joined the German nuclear energy advocacy group Nuclearia. I went on to a lot of their demonstrations. I was a member, probably one of the more active members. Um, I, I appeared on their demonstration, was, was a very loyal demonstration drawer for them when they had demonstrations. I, I started tweeting about um, nuclear energy on Twitter. I, I gave speeches at those, at those demonstrations. Yeah, but in the meantime, very much neglecting being a physics student. So I dropped out <laughs> of university and then applied for uh, Ausbildung, which is like 
I think like an apprenticeship for a job, like you work, but you also go to trade school at the same time. Oh, so cool. a lot of learning by studying, but also a lot of learning by doing. So I applied at I, I applied at nuclear power plants. I applied at Tesla, at several other car manufacturers. I almost applied at a coal power plant, but I got accepted mm -hmm. by a laser company where I now nice. work and where I love to work, actually. It's, it's, it's a nice job. I love it. That's awesome. And Yeah, so now I'm a, I'm a physics laboratory technician in training and also still a nuclear power advocate and also someone who spent the last one and a half year also additionally to researching more and more uh, nuclear energy, also started researching more and more new synthetic fuel or, or the possibility of making synthetic fuels with nuclear energy and also other sources of energy. That's amazing. Okay, cool. Because... In my energy writing, I come across synthetic fuel stuff and I don't have the background that you have. And I, like we were talking before we started recording how people are like, no, this is dumb. This is never going to work, but there's no explanation. Or they're like, this synthetic fuel is actually going to save the entire world. Don't ask me any questions. And there seems to be really hard to get good information. But before we dive into that. I need to ask you the most basic question there is about this. What is a synthetic fuel? So I, I would give you like, you like this. So I think most of us have an, have an understanding of what the fuel is, a form of safely stored energy that can be released in a, in a very short amount of time. So fossil fuel are mm -hmm. pretty much known. I think most people have, a, have an idea about what the biofuel is. And like a fossil fuel is essentially just a very old biofuel that has been gone through pyrolysis processes down in the, down in the earth. Mm -hmm. And now it exists in a more chemical, in a, in a different chemical composition, but it's essentially just a biofuel still. Um, right, right. So, and the and a synthetic fuel is is a fuel that is human made, made from from some other material, which could be a biofuel, which could be a fossil fuel, but which could also neither be fossil nor biofuel. And it's synthetically synthetically made by us to fit our desires to have easily stored and easily released energy. And this is like the important thing because like I could even like very primitive people could chop down a couple of trees, have several tons of wood, store them for years mm -hmm. and then make a giant bonfire and burn them all if they need like a lot of energy for something. Um, right, right. So for this some... is like, I think what I want to stress, it, it can store a lot of energy very mm -hmm. safely, very securely and, and in large volumes, but it also they can be released quickly. And many other ways of storing large amounts of energy don't allow that. So when you have nuclear energy, like if you want to release it quickly, great, have a nuclear bomb. But you, are, you, can, you can store like incredible amounts of energy, but you are limited in the way that you can release it. You can only really um, right, right. release it efficiently or, or, or cost-efficiently in mm. great power stations or naval reactors or potentially mm -hmm. hopefully in the future <laughs> rocket engines yeah hopefully not rocket engines on earth and but on the other side you also have for example stuff like when storing electricity in batteries or in in water like they they are not stored that that sustainably batteries experience phantom drain if you lift up a lot of water in the pump storage facility the water can evaporate so it's not really like a good way of storing energy for for a long time to have like right. a rainy day energy fund but it also is not it also has limitations in the way that you can withdraw it for example like you can 
withdraw extremely powerful short bursts of energy from a battery, but it can't really sustain it. Like you can have the battery pack of, of, of a Tesla can, do, can give you 500 kilowatts for 12 minutes. And but in the pumped storage plant can also give mm-hmm. you like a lot of energy, but probably most of them run dry after a day in an operation. Right, and right. If you have compared it to a coal plant or an oil-fired plant that could have reeds of fuel on site and yeah. many states of the world have oil reserves that can last for months. And that mm-hmm. isn't possible with the race of storing electricity or generating electricity. Right. Okay. So or, that or energy, it, not, not just electricity or energy. Right. Energy for various things you might want to do with it. So let's start with like, what to you is the most like probable synthetic fuel that we're getting? Like what, it, or what is like the thing that you're like, yes, this is real. This is happening. Methanol. Is methanol. Okay. Tell me about methanol. Methanol is the simplest form of alcohol you can have. It's just one carbon atom and connected to that are three hydrogen atoms and one hydrogen oxygen group, which is the characteristic chemical group of an alcohol. And this is basically as simple as you can make in any alcohol. And like methane is probably the easiest to synthesize via the Sabatier process. The Sabatier process is out of the 19th century. So, so this is not a new or hard thing. You can make our methane with, with it. Depends in which way you mix the carbon dioxide or carbon monoxide and hydrogen. Mm. And you can make both. Methane has the advantage that it has, has more energy density per mass and slightly more energy per carbon, which is an important metric with I hope to get into later. But the advantage of methanol are the following. It isn't a greenhouse gas, unlike methane. So when it leaves, it doesn't green those problems. While it's highly toxic for humans, it is very much biodegradable. So oh. for example, if a truck carrying petrol to, a, to your local petrol station spills, that is a huge environmental problem. If a truck that would carry like several, like two dozen cubic meters of methanol to your local station, which I hope some of you will be fueling your cars or whatever you drive in the future, that wouldn't be such a problem because you can just dump a lot of water on the methanol. Methanol is water dissolvable. It will locally, like on the very limited to the area because that, that gets so much of this toxic material it will saturate it and like you have like the immediate area like 10 meters around the spill that will probably be um yeah the plants will be dead but in general methanol is is biodegradable so as soon as you dissolve it and and as soon as the concentration gets low enough there will be organisms that can biodegrade it and it's then it's gone and that won't happen to, to gasoline first because it doesn't mix with water mm-hmm. so so it, let it can form an emulsion and this actually still poison water but you still will have like a solid phase which then slowly have some emulsions forming but it has to be absorbed by us humans in order to remove the danger from the environment the methanol can just be diluted to the point where it's biodegradable right. and strong that's that's one i think very important safety advantage when we talk mm. about it. It's also a liquid, which brings some benefit with it. because you don't have to build like complex, complex uh, structures like pressure tanks or mm. cryogenic tanks for, for, like, for like methane. You would either compress it at, at like 200 bars 
or chill it down to, I think, minus 95 degrees Celsius in order to transport and store it. And that is not needed with methane. So it's easy mm. to store. It's easy to store. It's compared, it's, it's quite safe. Don't drink mm -hmm. it. But I think most people won't go to a petrol station. Pull <laughs> and the drink the gas, yeah. Yes. So... Um, <laughs> It's slightly concern when you use ethanol fuel because people might get, get that idea or oh, it's ethanol, it's, it's drinkable alcohol and then start drinking it, which is problematic because uh, everywhere where such ethanol fuel is used, they put a little bit of poison into it to make it that you can't drink it because it's, it was not intended for human consumption. Most countries tax ethanol for human consumption, but don't tax ethanol for industrial or energy applications like right. that. So they put a toxin in it so that you can't drink it. So please don't don't drink don't do ethanol that. that is that is not specifically intended for you to drink. Right. Um, yeah, yeah, exactly. Okay. So, so methanol, methanol also is like a great uh, fuel for an auto engine. So it has an extremely high octane rating. Okay. It's it has a single carbon atom per molecule that gives you a good advantage because you can really easily disperse it with a with a fuel air ratio. So it burns very cleanly. It can be compressed very as a so the cylinder in your engine can reach a high compression ratio when running on on ethanol. It's uh, on methanol. It's very clean burning fuel. It's a high octane rating. So mm. it's potentially great fuel for for every every car engine or every other auto cycle engine that's out there. So I think that is the most... Right, that seems like the most, easiest. like, the go-to. Also, there is already a large industry that produces incredibly large amounts of methanol for all kinds of industrial applications. So if you want to establish such an industry, it's already there. Okay, cool. So yeah, okay. So you're not, you're not just having to invent a whole new industry. Yes. To we have this. just to expand in, in, we have just to expand an existing one. Right, okay. So how energy intensive is it to make this compared to, say, gasoline for your car? To, to make, I mean, when you start with the gasoline, you, you already start with the fuel existing. You just mm -hmm. have to refine it to make essentially the crude oil into, into the petrol. Mm -hmm. So the composition of the crude oil, it's a mix of all kinds of hydrocarbons desirable or undesirable mm -hmm. and in there is there are like very light ones like propane or ethane which or, or butane which are essentially just gases dissolved in this very dewy liquid phase but there is also like light benzene mm -hmm. like like the liquids but still very light carbon chains in there of the alkenes they were used as, as a kind of petrol back, back way back in the day like 100 years ago right. but are really undesirable fuels so then you come to what to the parts of the fuel that would make up what we now use uh, petrol as right. petrol in our cars, which is medium medium carbon chains it's like octane eight eight carbon atoms rho heptane mm -hmm. decane these these types of molecules. Then you get into diesel as as the carbon chains increase, and after diesel you get uh, kerosene. Mm -hmm. which was the first real petrol, the first real petroleum product, which we used kerosene 
as, as a replacement for lamp oil made uh, from killed whales. That's and right. And back in the day when essentially all the rest of the of the crude oil was just wastewater that was dumped into the nearest river, including the, the petrol and diesel, which we now cherish so much and wish to have more of. And then you get into the really nasty stuff like uh, the paraffins and the, the heavy oil, which was starting in the, in the beginning of the 20th century, was used for ships as bunker oils as they switched their boilers from coal-fired to That's this right. really nasty oil leftovers and still do actually. Yeah, yeah, bunker fuel is still gnarly. When I was still living in LA, there were a bunch of, there was like a month maybe last year when the port of LA was super clogged mm-hmm. and the air quality in LA just immediately got worse because they were just idling and burning bunker fuel right off the coast. So nasty. Like I walked into my apartment and the hallway was like thick with this almost like fog from the bunker fuel. Yeah. And it's, it, that isn't like, like this used to be modern cities back in the 50s and 60s. And this yeah. is so fascinating to me when you consider how the incredible amounts of progress we have made cleaning up the exhaust of our cars and you have these yeah. ships that that burn this first it's it's extremely nasty fuel it's not like the, the refined gasoline or diesel in your car and especially not like like which burns extremely cleanly but it's like even dirtier than the conventional petrol or diesel that you burn in your car Mm-hmm. And there is like almost nothing there to, to clean after clean the exhaust after that. There is no no re-injection of combustion gases like in my car right. or no catalytic converter. It's just straight the, the, the exhausts pumped straight into the atmosphere and the disgusting sulfur containing sludge dumped into the ocean when they Oof. are in a national water. It's like disgusting. And yeah. there's actually there is I think in, especially in the shipping industry, Maersk, which is the big Danish um, shipping company. Yeah, they're huge. Which actually they hope to use. Uh, they, they, they have, an, uh, have a project in trying to switch their, their ships onto a drivetrain that uses, by the way, methanol for, for a fuel in the future. And I really hope they do that because I generally hope, think that methanol is a great fuel. But doing so would bring tremendous environmental advantages just regarding air quality issues. Yeah, yeah. Like we ignore that because it happens on the open sea. It doesn't affect us that much. But, it's but there. as soon as they come close to any country, and it's, it's still there, it will affect many of the poor countries, which they pass, especially when you look into the Pacific there in, in Indonesia, to have, have like waterways, which are heavily used, but not that much, not very tightly regulated. So they dump a lot of their Nordic exhaust gases and they're not that far from people um, where emission controls are not that tight so it still matters and if they switch to methanol or generally if they do a little bit more of exhaust gas cleaning but gen- but doing methanol would do such a tremendous impact on the air quality in those areas where there is a lot of shipping yeah absolutely i think that's that's exciting i'm very very like I think that shipping is like decarbonizing or cleaning up shipping is just a huge boon for the world. And it's something that I'm glad is starting to get a little bit more airtime. So moving on from that, like, let me ask you maybe like a spicy take question. 
what is the, like the most bullshit synthetic fuel you've come across in your research where you're like, this doesn't, as we like to say in America, this dog don't hunt. Mm. Like what's so, the most like overpromised? Over, I mean, it's not bullshit, but I think it's overpromised, and it's not, not really like it's it's actually like it's it's necessary feedstock, not just mm-hmm. for synthetic fuel, but so much, and it's hydrogen, and mm. it's really Same it's a necessary yeah. feed, feedstock for almost all synthetic fuels, and it's a necessary feedstock for so many more products that we rely on and will forever rely on if we don't want industrial civilization to collapse back into ancient times and it's hydrogen but there are some really serious issues um, when using hydrogen in a few as a fuel that are blissfully ignored i think on the one hand because it has it has the advantage you don't have any carbon anymore in there, so nobody can can quasi tell you you're burning carbon and that's evil. It is yeah. it is kind of iconoclastic, which is what many people seek when we talk about any environmental issue. What what most comes to people instantly in their mind is iconoclasm. So mm-hmm. this pollutes, so we stop this, or we do something completely different. Right, right. Um, right. This is like so. For example, cars burning burning gasoline pollute the air, emit carbon dioxide. So what do we do? We do like, so the one iconoclast stuff would be say, oh, we all will be driving electric vehicles, which I think there is some good stuff to that. And the other is, oh, we will all be driving hydrogen powered or even worse, hydrogen powered fuel cell vehicles, which I, I don't. So what are the I problems think are viable. So this is like. Why aren't those viable? Tell me that. Give me the details on that. What? What you need about so what you need to, to understand about hydrogen hydrogen has an incredible energy density per mass, mm-hmm. but an extremely low energy density per volume. Even after you liquefy it cryogenically, or even if you compress it into extremely ridiculous pressures, it has still a very very low energy density per volume. So you so that makes storing and transporting it so hard that you either need ridiculous temperatures or ridiculous pressures, but still have like this shitty fuel regarding volumetric energy density. And another problem is that hydrogen embrittles steel. Mm. And so the steel is really a great really is a great material it's cheap it's inexpensive it's extremely versatile and by not being able to use the best material that we have to transport your fuel or contain your fuel you are really limiting your abilities to transport and store it and it makes hydrogen so problematic so yes i agree with that i here's something that i've been trying to figure out like In the U.S., I don't know if this is what you're seeing in Germany. There are a lot of people talking about how, like, we're going to have green hydrogen that is made with, like, renewables Mm -hmm. that can then be used the way we use natural gas to ramp up to meet demand when renewables drop off the grid. What's going on with this? Like, this doesn't pass the smell test to me. I mean, you could potentially do that. It's, it's a gas, you could burn it. But you have similar problems, like the embrittlement issue. Sure, if, you were yeah. to, um, if you were to use it in like a previously methane-powered power plant. So hydrogen is, is not as easy to use as methane. 
Mm. And so you would, so this is like H2 hydrogen ready natural gas power plants are mm -hmm. like this huge thing that are priced as a solution to, to back up renewables. Mm -hmm. But it's a, it's a different animal to burn hydrogen in your gas turbine than compared to methane. Mm. It gets, yeah, like, and, and another thing is to transport it. So some, one thing that is, is often said that okay, we can blend hydrogen into our net gas stream. Right, and clean it up a so little. As, yes, just clean it up a little. But there's a limit to that. I could do that with methanol. I could put methanol into petrol and increase right. the level of methanol as thin fuel production can increase and one day phase out petrol altogether. Petrol and methanol can be mixed in like essentially any ratio and I can mm -hmm. use a normal auto, car, auto cycle engine and retrofit it to, to run on every of those ratios. But I can't really do that with hydrogen and methane. They don't mix like this. You can get to 10% hydrogen content, but after that, it stops. The methane won't really dissolve any more hydrogen I into see. it. And then you can either say, okay, I will just pump straight hydrogen into this pipeline, which then pump puts you into the question if you use straight hydrogen, pipeline of, of, of same size, because hydrogen is so less energy dense volumetrically, will just carry a lot less hydrogen. Also, if it's from made from steel, guess what? Embrillment issues again. Yes. So yeah. there are some real problems in into make into making those like a reality. And the more cynically, more climate hawkish people will probably rightfully accuse this of being a way just to greenwash natural gas. And it right. kinda is. Because <laughs> regarding the hydrogen, it's a dead end. Right. And like I wanna say it like this. Hydrogen has been used as a real fuel only by one industry, and that's space. Because, um, because it's such a, such a lightweight gas that makes such a lightweight exhaust water, you can make the most efficient combustion-powered rocket engines with it. Mm. That, that's really important for rocket engine, not just that it contains a lot of energy per rate, but also that the exhaust gases are really light, because when they are light, they will leave your engine nozzle much faster, and the faster they will leave your engine nozzle out of the back of your rocket, the more efficiently you can use your, your fuel. That's really important for rocket engines. But there are so much tremendous drawbacks to using hydrogen as a fuel that like some nations have completely ignored it in their in their in their rocket development like as the soviet union really only used the hydrogen engine for their buran rocket which they used two times and, and then abandoned it they only really figured out how to use that fuel right before it collapsed the <laughs> americans did it a lot earlier in the 60s mm -hmm. so uh, saturn 5 had hydrogen powered engine but they had actually okay. quite simple hydrogen powered engines um and now like the the rl10 is like the upper stage rocket engine that a lot of American rockets now use and it's incredibly expensive to make. So hydrogen fuel has some real drawbacks for a rocket engine. And that's why, that's why the space industry tries to get away from it. Even though that it gives you actually advantages that you can't get with any other fuel because it's such a problem to handle and make engines for it, they are getting away from it. I um, see. Look, SpaceX has never used a hydrogen-powered engine. They mm. had the most success because they used really simple fuel, kerosene and liquid oxygen. Mm -hmm. And then they now switch to an even more simpler fuel, methane and liquid oxygen. 
mm-hmm. in order to make even simpler, but because the methane is more lightweight, also more right. efficient engines. So does the small American, Austri- American New Zealand rocket company, which made a lot of small set launches and had great success with that and now plans to make a, a bigger, also reusable rocket. And they plan to make one on methane and liquid oxygen. And so does Blue Origin want to use methane for and liquid oxygen for their rockets. So does the, the United Launch Alliance. There are research mm-hmm. projects in, in China and the European Union to use methane and liquid oxygen. So you see that space in space, spacefaring industry is moving away from this fuel. And this is an industry that has much more manpower and money to spend on babysitting their fuels. And we can't do that normally. We can't babysit our fuels. We need a fuel that babysit itself. And that has been mostly oil. If you look at a fuel like diesel, you can leave it rotting in a barrel and it will, it will disintegrate. It will be a a less useful fuel. But you still use it. Yes, but you can still burn it and can stay there. You can have like national reserves of oil that mm-hmm. last for a long time. And you can't really, that, that doing the same thing with something like hydrogen, but also with methane. With methane, it, it, it's, it's better. It still has some issues, but with hydrogen, it's like really problematic. And hydrogen has a tendency to leak. Okay. Okay. So now let me ask you this question. Where does nuclear fit into the synthetic fuel game? It's simple. It's the source of the hydrogen and also the source of energy that could capture some carbon from the air if you want to use air captured, if you do some captured from the air. And mm. it's, I think if you want to do it in a way that is climate friendly, mm-hmm. there are only really for viable options. Okay. Using geothermal energy, using hydro, using nuclear, or using methane pyrolysis. Methane mm-hmm. pyrolysis probably very unpopular among many nuclear folks because nuclear power enthusiasts often dislike natural gas. Mm-hmm. And with methane pyrolysis, you can turn natural gas into hydrogen and hydrogen and carbon. Carbon is solid coal essentially which is extremely storable. So by actually doing this way, you will get some hydrogen and thus some energy from the natural gas. But besides some methane leakages, you don't have any greenhouse gas emissions. Gotcha. Gotcha. Because okay. unlike, for example, steam reforming, where you turn the methane or, for example, you also do it with coal or oil, completely into hydrogen and have some carbon dioxide as a an, as an waste product, Right. You will never really be able to catch all the carbon dioxide and you will never to be able to store all of what you can catch. And there are some valid concerns about the longevity of the storage mechanisms that you use. And that isn't the case with methane pyrolysis because you have a solid form of carbon, like just normal anthracite coal, essentially. Probably not that pretty, but this way you... Unless someone in the future will burn it, this carbon mm-hmm. won't be released in the atmosphere ever again. Right, okay. So okay. You could so, just yeah. dump it on a big pile and leave it there and can be assured that no carbon dioxide or almost none because maybe the vehicles that you use to extract mm-hmm. your methane might still burn some conventional oil or something. Mm-hmm. But there is no real carbon dioxide from this process that it's leaked into the atmosphere. There will be still be, because there ever will be, there always will be some methane that gets leaked. Mm-hmm. 
but you can actually decrease the, the amount of methane that gets leached and not that methane has um, the nice effect that it will decay in the atmosphere got you okay okay and carbon dioxide i don't want to say this in a way that we should ignore methane emissions but i think um, right. carbon dioxide emissions are far worse because they will haunt you forever and yeah. methane you just need to emit less and the amount will decrease while carbon dioxide as, as long as you emit it will forever increase in concentration in the atmosphere and will make the situation worse if we could just keep methane emissions at a stable level or decrease it slightly we would be fine regarding the methane emissions it's not like you need to okay. get at zero with methane emissions you just need to decrease it slightly right right that's easier to handle okay no that's really really helpful this is this has been so fascinating because I've been wondering about this stuff for a while and I feel like I have a way clearer picture. There's also not just the synthesis of the fuel, but also so many different ways of sourcing the hydrogen and the carbon. Like even if you, let, let's exclude like the methane pyrolysis version, sure, which I think sure. is incredibly fascinating because I fear that given the, the growth that it doesn't matter whether it's nuclear or renewables, you would have to grow it incredibly fast. Sure. to meet like even the most low decarbonization targets that we set ourselves in. So I know it isn't popular among the people who want to feel righteous by mm -hmm. just excluding it or generally any fossil fuels that we will, I fear, rely for the coming decades. But it, it, it has potential. But there are also so many different ways of using the nuclear electricity and process it of making hydrogen, including established ones and potential ones for the future that I think are really fascinating. Also, there is a question of sourcing like the carbon. If you make carbon-based fuels, you have to source the carbon. So there are, you could potentially source it from carbon captured from the air, which is a field in which for like, really for the first time in history, I think we are seeing some progress being made. And I think that's really exciting, although it still exciting. remains an expensive process, but it's not as, as crippling the energy expensive as I thought it would be. It's like acceptable. I think there is some chance that even if the, if the plants that can capture carbon from the air are mass produced together to, down to a price in which it's acceptable, synthetic yeah. fuels from those probably still cheaper than oil has been, still more expensive than oil has been historically, but affordably enough especially if you learn to use it more efficiently. Mm. But I think also something that shouldn't be, that should be considered is using biogenic carbon. This is also mm. another thing with which I will upset many, many pro-nuclear people, <laughs> especially the, the more environmentally minded people. Like mm -hmm. they absolutely fucking hate biofuels. Anything right, right, right. that has any notion of using energy from any biomass ever even if you're mostly using it as a source of carbon and not as a source of energy, they fucking hate it. So I probably made some enemies inside the pro-nuclear movement because sure. I now endorsed methane pyrolysis and biogenic carbon for at right. least some application for some time. Sure. Um, I hope I won't get too many angry messages. That's the thing. Another thing, like similarly, like you could remove carbon dioxide from the air, you could do it from the water. The, mm -hmm. which is interesting but i think we more I, th I think the air has has some advantages by doing it like we should, we should do it like one thing that i read about was like using nuclear power plants 
as mm. carbon capture plants, like capturing mm. carbon from the air. One thing is trying turning the cooling tower into a giant uh, air capture facility. Is oh, another sick. idea. So it's just like a big vacuum tube. <laughs> no, no, it's, it it's what the cooling tower essentially does. It sucks in air from the bottom, mm -hmm. and it sprays down some water into it, and some of the water evaporates. This rapidly cools the water right. because the evaporation enthalpy of water is so high that you actually need to evaporate very little amount of water to, to get away a lot of heat. And so the idea is the following. You dissolve, dissolve a base, so, so an alkaline solution into that water. And when what happens essentially is those alkaline solutions react with carbon dioxide to form carbonate salts. So you spray continually these alkaline solutions into the cooling tower, and it forms you know, those carbonate salts with the air, which then can be collected at the bottom of the cooling tower, turned back into alkaline solution and carbon dioxide, and thus you can capture some uh, carbon dioxide with the cooling tower. And another another project that was proposed is for for nuclear. This was, by the way, proposed for nuclear plants because if you do it for a coal plant, there is no way that it would capture carbon dioxide to offset the coal emissions. But you could right. potentially do it for like geothermal or nuclear. So this was proposed for nuclear both as a way to reduce carbon emissions overall of the whole society, but also as an as an idea to then use some of the energy produced by the nuclear power plant to turn those into synthetic fuels. And another project proposed would, was the using the water that the that some nuclear power plants that are cooled by the sea use. Mm. And those contain a lot of carbon dioxide. Actually, they contain more per volume than actually the air. And then essentially cooking the carbon dioxide out of the the water right. and capturing that and then releasing water containing less carbon dioxide back into the ocean and the way that carbon dioxide content with the ocean and the air it's changed that if the carbon dioxide content in the ocean rises too starkly it will release carbon dioxide into the air and the other way around some carbon dioxide emission from the air will get back into the ocean if carbon dioxide content in the ocean gets too low so it, it, since, since it's, it changes carbon dioxide with the air, via extracting carbon dioxide from the ocean, you can essentially also extract it from the air. And because the content per volume in the ocean is, I think, yes, it's slightly higher, this was seen as more valuable, as more viable. Man, amazing. Okay. Well, it's clear to me that I'm just going to have to have you back a bunch of times to keep talking about this stuff. <laughs> It'd be um, lovely. Yeah, that's great. Okay. So... Thank you for being here, everyone. Thank you for listening. And remember to stay strong, stay sharp, and stay radiant. We will see you next time on Nuclear Barbarians.